welcome to this episode of Cell and Gene, the podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Harris. And listeners, let me tell you, you are in for an absolute treat for this episode of the pod. Joining me today is someone whom I have looked to for his extensive expertise and guidance since we launched Cell and Gene. Dr. Bruce Levine, Barbara and Edward Netter Professor in Cancer Gene Therapy at the University of Pennsylvania, president of ISCT, which is, of course, the International Society for Cell and Gene Therapy. He's also a Cell and Gene Editorial Advisory Board member, and that's just to name a few things. So, Bruce, welcome. I'm so incredibly excited and thankful that you're here today. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks to be speaking with you, Aaron. Great. So I want to jump right into your academic and professional career. I want to give the listeners uh, a little bit of uh, insight into what got you to where you are today, because it's your your career is robust and extensive. So talk us through a little bit about your path to where you are today. As I mentioned earlier, you're the Barbara and Edward Netter Professor of Cell, excuse me, Cancer Gene Therapy at the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. So it's uh, somewhat of a circular path or maybe a polygon. Uh, my, uh, my father is a retired scientist and my mother a retired nurse. And at some point in high school, um, my parents said to me, well, instead of going to overnight camp, uh, you're going to be working during the summer. And my father found a position for me with a colleague of his at the Wistar Institute which was on that campus. So that's where I learned to do what we uh, fondly call as laboratory scut work. Uh, so making the media, getting the glassware. Um, but I did also learn cell culture there um, and um, knew that I would be taking a science track mm -hmm. in college. And I applied to Penn, majored in biology, minored in history, and worked at Wistar all through undergrad. Again, gaining some experience in the laboratory and how laboratories operate. Uh, and then as I was getting further along in my academic career, I asked some of my professors, what do you think is the up and coming fields in the next 20 or 30 years? Mm -hmm. And I received the answer of immunology. So I took a class in immunology, uh, did okay in it. Uh, and then um, spoke, um, you know, with my father, who is a PhD himself, about grad school. He said, well, first, you want to get experience in a lab uh, before going to grad school, if you're going to be doing that as a career, meaning full-time experience. And number two, don't go to grad school at Penn because you should get other experiences. So I interviewed for a number of technician positions. I took one at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Uh, and my uh, job was to do immune assessment on vaccine clinical trials of the varicella vaccine. So before we have this uh, current situation with mm -hmm. very rapid development of COVID vaccines, uh, this was Merck developing a vaccine uh, to varicella that causes chickenpox and shingles. So I applied to grad school a number of places, went to Johns Hopkins, program was immunology and infectious diseases, purposely chose a laboratory for my thesis work 
in the hospital, Johns Hopkins Hospital. Now, why was that? Well, at Children's, the lab was on the eighth floor. You had to take the elevator to get there, obviously. And when coming in, going down, lunch, leaving, you're riding the elevator with kids in wheelchairs, on gurneys. Um, and I was a young young kid myself, not a kid, but, you know, 21, 22, 23. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, well, if I'm going to do research, I want to do research that matters uh, for patients, for kids. Uh, and that's why I did my thesis work in Johns Hopkins Hospital. So uh, moving forward a little bit on my thesis work, I read papers by a guy named Carl June. Mm-hmm. who was at the Naval Medical Research Institute. I was working on T-cells on my thesis project applied to Carl's lab. He took me in and I was on a few projects and then on one, how to grow T-cells very efficiently and worked out a system using tiny magnetic beads to which we conjugate two antibodies, very efficiently grew T-cells. And then he said, well, how would you like to start and run a lab that grows T-cells for adoptive immunotherapy trials? And that was just what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So that brings us up, I guess, to the uh, middle 90s. And we infused our first patient in an HIV adoptive immunotherapy trial in 1996. Carl was recruited to Penn in 99. Recall I'd gone there as an undergrad So he didn't have to recruit me. I call it reverse recruiting, like me telling him about Philadelphia, uh, and he didn't need to worry about me coming with him. Uh, So we started the program here in Philadelphia in 1999, and and things just uh, really blossomed from there. So Bruce, your CV is absolutely riddled with firsts. So listeners, first in human adoptive immunotherapy trials that include the first use of a lentiviral vector, the first infusion of gene edited cells, and the first use of lentivirally, excuse me, modified cells to treat cancer. So Bruce, talk us through what did it take to bring these firsts to life? And then, you know, since then, how have you and your colleagues continued to move these needles forward? You know, it's um, kind of funny. I guess it's a happy accident working on T-cells and developing this system to efficiently grow T-cells because once we did that and published and and uh, car was presenting and word got around, we were approached by a company called Cell Genesis. And this mm-hmm. must have been 96 or so. And Cell Genesis was actually the company that conducted the very first chimeric antigen receptor T-cell trials, both in cancer and in HIV. And they were using at the time an older system, uh, CD3 plus cytokines, and uh, they would infuse the cells and then they disappear. So they came to us and uh, we struck up a collaboration where they would use the system that we developed to grow T-cells And lo and behold, patients that were infused with the CD3, CD28B T-cells 
their CAR T cells persisted. And so that, that was actually uh, collaborating on the very first CAR T cell trials, Carl and I with cell genesis. So then as uh, I think we published more, presented more, word got around, once we moved to Penn, we were approached by a biotech called Varixis, who had licensed technology and developed lentiviral vectors. Uh, this was poor droplet. And so then it just snowballed, right? So we showed that we could develop the technology and bring it to clinical trials. Something that I didn't mention was when Carl wrote and submitted our very first IND in May 1996, the feedback from the FDA was this was one of the uh, better or maybe the best investigator-initiated IND they had seen, especially in biologics and even more so in cell and gene therapy. Mm -hmm. So we had that template and, and showed that we could move from bench to bedside. So Phyrexis and Lentivirus. And then with gene editing, Dale Ando uh, had been the chief medical officer at Cell Genesis. Mm -hmm. So we had a relationship with him. He moved to a company called Sangamo, uh, mm -hmm. it, no one knew of them at the time. Of course, now they do. But Sangamo was working on this crazy idea that you could knock out and edit genes. And when they came to us, the efficiency was really low, uh, like in the 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3%. And in the lab, uh, Jim Riley, Richard Carroll, Elena Perez, and others were able to increase that by tenfold. Uh, and then uh, we had to scale it, up, scale it up from millions of cells to billions of cells. And we got it to the point where we were 30 to 40 to 50% efficient. And that was the first gene editing clinical trial targeting CCR5 in HIV patients. Uh, and, and then all the others really just built upon that experience uh, that we had. Sure. Amazing. So speaking of, you know, so you're talking a lot about academia partnered with biotech, and I want to talk about that a little bit more um, in, in bridging the gap between academia and industry. How would you say now academia and industry are working more side by side, perhaps than they were um, to bring complex therapies to the patient? And what would you say is going really well? And what would you say has a little bit more room for improvement? Yeah, you know, I think the difference is now there is an industry. Then 96, 97, early 2000s, uh, there were startups and they had funding and sometimes they lost funding. There's actually a spin out uh, from the Navy or a company that had licensed the technology that we developed when Carl and I were at the Naval Medical Research Institute, the T-cell growth technology called Excite. Mm -hmm. They conducted a couple of clinical trials, but then they went out of business because their funding ran out. So that was more common than not then, even if you did get a company off the ground. So what's going well now is there is a vision of cell and gene therapy as a therapeutic pillar of medicine. There are investors 
uh, willing to put in significant amount of funding to allow these companies to mature and to go from uh, a research idea to preclinical proof of concept to first in human clinical trial to pivotal clinical trials. Uh, and, um, um, you know, the, there's a whole mix of different sizes of companies when, and I'll just speak briefly about our, not our first uh, car trials in HIV with cell genesis, but moving to the first car trials in cancer, which we started in 2010. So we had three patients, extraordinary results, pounds of leukemia disappearing in several weeks, and then published in August, 2011. The University of Pennsylvania was approached by many different entities from one person with a lot of money, all the way up to some large biotech and also Novartis. And, you know, Novartis had had experience in gene therapy uh, going back in, even to the late 90s. But no one thought that a large pharma would be interested in, in that. Uh, and so we signed an alliance with them. And look, it was a learning experience on both sides. Uh, here's the new generation of cell and gene therapy. We had to teach Novartis about T cells. How do you think about a dose of a dividing drug? How do you think about quality control? How do you think about a bespoke a product? And we had to learn things about how pharma operated and uh, um, later stage clinical trials and, and how they operated. I, I liken it to learning a new language that was called abortion. Uh, and so we had to learn how to communicate. Now, I think those skills are much more prevalent in academia and industry working together. Um, still, it's not 100%. Uh, people aren't fluent, uh, but it's a lot better than it was. Yeah, for sure. It definitely sounds it. Um, at the top of our introduction, I mentioned the list of, of things you are known for. Uh, one of them being that I didn't get to talk about at the top of the, the pod is that you co-founded Teamunity Therapeutics. Just talk to us a little bit about why you started Teamunity and what, what its role is in the sector. Uh, it's with us here in Philadelphia. So just teach us a little bit about it. Yeah. You know, um, in 2011, when we were looking at licensing the CAR-T technology in cancer, uh, in uh, leukemia targeting CD19 other targets, there really wasn't a choice. With the results that we were seeing, we were ethically bound to work with a partner that would get this therapy approved as soon as possible. And to benefit patients was the goal. There wasn't the funding available for a startup, or if there was, it was quite small. And we'd be looking at, you know, a, a decade or so until we got to the point we thought if we could get there to have an approved product. Um, but then following the Novartis Alliance and you had Kite and then Juno and then Bellicum and then, uh, you know, literally a couple hundred 
companies now around the world looking at engineered immune effector cells, whether they're T cells or NK cells or gamma delta cells. So in 2015, we sat around a table and said, look, we have all of this intellectual property uh, that Novartis has not licensed. Um, and apart from that, we had so many other ideas and stuff that was currently licensed to Novartis. Maybe if they're not able to develop that, uh, we could one day get it back. So that was the impetus behind starting community, uh, something that could be uh, more nimble uh, and uh, allow us to take our ideas to the clinic. And now Timidity is focused on solid cancers. And, uh, you know, we've made great progress in CD19 targeting leukemia and lymphoma. Uh, there is now an approved product targeting BCMA and myeloma. There's going to be a second product approved in that. But solid cancers, much more challenging. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We believe we have the team in place to take on that challenge. Uh, and we recognize, you know, with recent events that it's not going to be a smooth road, uh, but we're fully confident that we have the team in place in community and working with Penn uh, to surmount any hurdles and make progress for patients. For sure. And, and Selengine follows Timunity pretty uh, pretty closely, so we'll be waiting to see what happens and rooting for everyone. So you're the president of ISCT, and the 2021 virtual annual meeting just wrapped up. So talk to us a little bit about the biggest highlights of the meeting and out of the meeting, what are you most excited about on the heels of what was presented and uncovered? Yeah, so uh, we took on a challenge this year. Last year, we did a virtual meeting uh, pretty much from scratch, about six or seven weeks once it became evident what was happening around the world with the pandemic. So this year, we knew from early on it was going to be virtual, but we made the decision uh, to really do almost exclusively live sessions and talks. And why? Uh, well, because there's really a certain energy with that and the interactions. And, and we had uh, 91 um, session um, sessions. The bulk majority of those were live. Uh, we had several dozen industry-sponsored sessions. We had dozens of exhibit booths. We had roundtables. Uh, we had uh, something that we called ISCT TV, which was a live preview and commentary on each plenary session uh, with highlights. So mm -hmm. uh, like you were bumping into people in the hallway and having that conversation. What did you think of that session kind of thing? And I thought that would be okay, but it really really, really worked well. Um, and we got great feedback on that. As far as the highlights on the meeting, we had plenaries and MSCs and COVID uh, and on exosomes. I think exosomes are a real up and coming technology mm -hmm. that we're 
looking at potentially as therapeutics. And then for the presidential plenary, which, which uh, as president I get to design, I was thinking about the issues that we've been seeing with uh, potency and CMC in regulatory filings with the FDA, uh, but I wanted to do something different and with luminaries in the field. And so it just came to me over a couple of weeks what to do, and that was to have a session in the commercialization track, but would integrate science, regulatory oversight, and commercialization for this new wave of cell and gene therapies. And so we had Ari Peldegrun, uh, who was a kite and founded Allergene, also Vita Ventures. We have Peter Marks, director of the FDA Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. We have Matt Porteous from Stanford, uh, uh, who does great work uh, researching gene editing and has spun out two companies himself. Now, I have to tell you, we had a practice session for an hour just to discuss what was going to be discussed. And I could tell that was going to be great. It was just mm -hmm. so much fun. Ari has stories. Uh, uh, everyone uh, really worked well together. And, and uh, we had them speak about their background for perspective. And then challenges in the field, including uh, bonesy assays. And Peter Mark said, look, perfect can be the enemy of good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> got to give mm -hmm. us something that you can measure that means something. Uh, and I think that was an important message. Uh, and uh, yeah, just uh, uh, I think we had um, uh, pretty much a seamless uh, meeting, wonderful and interactive platform. And it's available until December 31st, 2021 at iect2021.com. Plug, plug. <laughs> As, as you should, I was going to ask you for all of that information anyway. Uh, and listeners, I can tell you firsthand that I attended virtually and I, Dr. Levine is absolutely right. It was a, a seamless experience from the user, from the, the attendee, and the information shared was just remarkable. So uh, I have never put a virtual conference together, but I have moderated sessions. And even that is it's it, there's a lot that goes into it. So uh, you are to be commended for how not only well it went off logistically, but um, just a really robust amount of information that was shared. Yeah, a huge team effort uh, amongst the organizing committee, the co-chairs and the ICT head office. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think hybrid virtual meetings are going to continue. What we mm -hmm. found is we had much greater attendance uh, from some lower middle income countries uh, and other regions where either the company or the institution or the investigator would not have been able to send someone to Paris or New Orleans. Uh, and I think this is going to change the way meetings are conducted. Of course, you need to be in person uh, for networking, for uh, the uh, uh, togetherness and, and just sure, the uh, energy formulating collaborations. Mm -hmm. uh, it's much, much more effective in person. 
I would agree. I, I, I do really value an in-person conference, uh, but I do think that there are some really good, good things that have come out of this whole thing with virtual conferences. I know even myself, I attended many more virtual conferences that I would have professionally attended in person. So um, I feel like I learned a lot myself just due to the sheer sheer volume that I was able to attend. But you're right, seeing bumping into people in the, the hallway of the convention center and having, you know, good quality conversations, nothing really beats it. So, so I think it's a good thing to have a hybrid option. Yeah. So, I just recently interviewed Kevin Mahoney, the CEO of University of Pennsylvania Health System, uh, as you know, uh, for the pod. And we talked extensively about Philadelphia's role in cell and gene therapy as a sector. So talk to us about Silicon Valley in your own words. So Silicon Valley, of course, referring to Philadelphia uh, as the hub of cell and gene therapy. Um, what is it? what's in store for the sector in the next three to five years or so, thanks to what's going on in the greater Philadelphia region. Yeah, so first, uh, I know Kevin well. Uh, I respect him tremendously. Uh, um, He, I'm sure, did not envision that uh, taking the position of CEO would be at the beginning of a pandemic, uh, but there's no one that could have been here, I think, that uh, could have shepherded uh, the health system through the pandemic uh, that he and his team. So he, he deserves tremendous uh, credit for that. Now, Silicon Valley, you know, it's a, a cheeky term, and it just kind of came to me one day when I was speaking to a patient family in my office. Uh, But what's meant by that is, look, Philadelphia used to be known or or sometimes is still known as Eds and Meds. Uh, I think we are now Eds and the new Meds. What that means is we have such intellectual capital, uh, not only at Penn, but at the other universities, um, Jefferson, Drexel, uh, Temple, USP, everywhere. Uh, that are developing these new technologies. We have many spin-outs from Penn and those institutions. We now have companies locating here because of the intellectual capital in the area. Uh, I think uh, what we could use is some more local financial capital uh, to fund all of those ideas. Uh, But what's developed over the past I'd say 15 years or so is an ecosystem uh, to facilitate the development of uh, this new pillar of medicine. And we brought people in from outside of the area uh, that didn't know all that Philadelphia has to offer. And when you think about it, uh, being ads and meds, all the big farmer within an hour drive away. I'm not going to name them, but then there's the big biotechs like Centacor and so many other companies. And that talent stream is now being integrated into these new technologies. Um, and 
as I said, companies are coming here, uh, people are coming here, and the uh, graduates are staying here mm-hmm. to work in, in this new uh, field. And I look out my window and I see building cranes going up, uh, whether it's at the Science Center or Center City. Uh, so uh, I think this is the future of medicine will be in Philadelphia. And we have a history of first, first uh, hospital uh, in the Western Hemisphere here. Uh, America's first scientist, Benjamin Franklin, founded the University of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. We're about at the end of our episode here, but uh, at the end of every podcast, I ask the same question to each of our each of my subject matter experts that is a guest on the pod. And that question is to describe your ideal Saturday. And that's to give our listeners a glimpse into who you are when you're not at the office or the lab. So Dr. Levine, please explain to us, describe your ideal Saturday. Well, it could be a Saturday or a Sunday or another, right? Yeah. Any day, any day that that's, you're not, you're not at the office. Yeah. So I've been, cycling for a while, I actually not forever, but maybe it was 10 years ago only that I got my first road bike. And then uh, two years ago, I was tipped off by a friend about gravel biking and I bought a gravel bike and you go on rails to trails or in the woods. Um, And that's what I've been doing lately. And the thing about gravel biking is not quite mountain biking, but you can go go a lot of places off-road and Mm -hmm. see some amazing scenery that you couldn't see from a road, uh, and there's not the cars. So just went this past weekend on the Delaware River Canal uh, from uh, Frenchtown up to Easton and back. Uh, That Mm -hmm. was a nice ride, and... And uh, yeah, go with a couple of buddies of mine or more and really enjoy it. Oh, that sounds so interesting. And and now, especially this time of year, it's beautiful out to see, like you said, be on the road and, you know, knee deep into whether it be a trail or what have you. And there's no shortage of places to do that around here. So that's great. I'm gonna have to look into this. I've never heard of gravel, G-A-R-V-E-L. Yep. All right. So converting, into this. Uh, a lot of these are old railways that they've converted to a gravel or dirt trail, and you can take a, a bike on there. That is so interesting. Well, all right. I'm, I love it. <laughs> all right. That wraps up this episode of Cell and Gene, the podcast. Thanks again to Dr. Bruce Levine for his time and insight in this pod. And please subscribe and recommend selling Gene, the podcast to your colleagues and for them to do the same. Thanks again, Bruce. It was great to have you. Thank you, Aaron. And we will see you next time. Talk soon.